All right. Talking about spiritual warfare again this week. Title of the sermon, Getting a Bigger Picture. Last time we were together, we began a series on spiritual warfare. In that sermon, we established the reality of this warfare and and considered the moment that humanity was brought into that conflict between God and Satan through the temptation and eventual rebellion of Adam. From this point forward, mankind has always been a pivotal player in kingdom warfare between Satan and God. Born as man is now into Satan's kingdom, lives in fealty to Satan's ideas through the institutions, philosophies, and desires of the world around us. But as we consider this theme together, the reality of spiritual warfare together, we recall and recognize that God is not simply a passive player. It is not as if Satan is the only one on the offensive here and that Satan is doing these terrible things and God is just sitting back uh, without any capacity to do anything about it, watching as this kingdom is stripped from him. Uh, This is certainly nothing of the sort. God is active. That just as Adam chose to follow the promises of Satan and to fall into this uh, place of, of sinfulness that we find ourselves in now, so too God has been active calling humanity back to himself, revealing himself to all mankind through creation, through conscience, and for some, the blessing of God's word. So we established last time the reality of spiritual warfare and then considered in our final moments various verses that speak to the fact that we uh, as Christians are still in this warfare. We'll find as we go through the sermon today that our warfare is a little bit different than those who had come before, a little bit different in this age of grace than those who were pre-cross, pre-resurrection, pre-Pentecost. But this spiritual warfare is and most definitely uh, has been an essential reality in this age in which we live regarding the souls of unbelieving men as uh, we uh, seek to call men out of darkness into Christ's marvelous light. But also, and this is where we're going with it primarily, Christian, also in the lives of Christians themselves. This warfare rages in the lives of Christians determining our own spiritual health as well as our spiritual effectiveness for God's kingdom. And this week, having established the reality last week of this warfare, I would like to take a step back and I'd like to remind you of a bigger picture. I'd like to show you a bigger picture for some of you. This message is not entirely original. In February, February 24th, in fact, of 2018, I preached a message. It was the second half of a two-part message, in fact, on God's kingdom program. And I presented some of the material that uh, you will see today at that time as well. It was a beginning of the book series uh, through the revelation of Jesus Christ. But this material is most certainly worth covering again. And as I do so, I remind you that I present this material from a very distinct method of interpretation. We established well in that series, and if you haven't watched that series or listened to that series on Revelation, even if you're not particularly interested in Revelation, which at this time uh, perhaps you you should be, maybe more so even than usual, um, that the first three months of that series, the first 12 messages, were, were foundational introductory material, not necessarily about the revelation of Jesus Christ, uh, per se, but, but more so about how we interpret the Bible, the bigger picture of, of God's prophetic program, things which are, are more general, but I think would be very, very helpful to you if you have not uh, heard those things before or not listened to that series. 
as with all things, our methods of interpretation and, and, and uh, theology and such can be boiled down to what we would call an ism of sorts. Uh, when I say isms, we, we have any number of isms in the world, uh, any number of isms in the church. In the world, you have capitalism and you have socialism. Uh, in the church, you have um, Calvinism and, and, and um, you have Arminianism. And, and, and so we see all of these different elements, these different isms. And isms uh, tend to be very broad sweeping ter terms that represent broad sweeping concepts. And they can be very frustrating, can't they? And ism can be very frustrating. It can be very divisive, and it can even be subversive to the cause of teaching, and that for a few reasons. First, because isms are somewhat constraining. So that when I associate with an ism, I am generally associating with everything that that ism uh, speaks to uh, based upon the person that taught it. And different people associate different things with different isms based upon what they've been taught by different people. So whether I agree or not with some of the nitty-gritty of a certain ism, when I say I am that certain ism, I am associated with everything that that ism might represent or stand for. Second, we find that isms also have a tendency to become consuming, tempting me to allow my loyalty to the ism to override my loyalty to the Word of God so that I stop uh, defining my ism according to what I find in the Word of God and I start defining the Word of God according to the belief in my ism. And this is a very big problem in the church. It always has been a big problem in the church uh, that to whatever degree we have defined isms, uh, even the various catechisms um, that we that uh, have, have defined the church, these catechisms uh, um, oftentimes speaking very general truths about the Word of God, but becoming so loyal to whatever ism it might be uh, that we prop up the ism as our authority rather than uh, using the ism as a means by which to describe some measure of, of biblical reality or, or biblical understanding from the Bible's authority. And the third general danger or problem with isms is that they are divisive. Where because a person becomes associated with an ism or associates himself with an ism, and the ism that they associate themselves with, th themselves with is an ism that I personally find uh, wrong or distasteful or problematic... I determine that they are thus in error because of their holding to that ism, and I then refuse to associate with them because their ism perhaps conflicts with my ism or whatever the case may be. And these are problems uh, with isms, and so we want to be careful when we use any of these isms to label ourselves uh, because in labeling ourselves with an ism, we, we, are, we are taking upon ourselves a good deal of baggage perhaps. But... There are also a number of benefits to isms, and this is why isms exist. Why is it that we don't just read the Bible, but we do things like uh, put together systematic theology so that we have the study of various topics within the measure of the Word of God, and then we combine teaching with teaching, even though it might uh, not necessarily contain all of the context of that teaching, in order to lay out a, a systematic truth? Why is it that we take all of the various elements of, of some perspective or, or interpretation and we boil it down to an ism as it relates to something such as Calvinism or Arminianism and uh, we, we seek to define the truth in, in such a way? Well, there are a couple of reasons and they're good ones. First, they allow me to quickly associate myself with a theology or a point of faith so that I don't need to explain it every time. If I tell you I am a certain ism, then everybody who understands that ism knows what I am. 
and we don't have to go through the rigmarole of defining everything, every little point, because my ism uh, defines that for me. Second, uh, it allows others to quickly gain a context on what I'm thinking, so that if I claim an ism, a person listening can very quickly and easily understand where I am coming from. So I could have avoided all of this, and I could have just told you the ism I'm about to tell you, and then moved right on past it, assuming that you know what that ism is, and then because you know what that ism is, I don't have to spend this five to seven minutes uh, talking to you about isms or talking to you about the particular ism that I'm about to talk to you about. The problem is um, I don't work that way. Right? Um, I don't work that way because I want to help people understand the Bible. I don't want people to become loyal to an ism. So uh, I, and as, I, as we talk through any nature of ism, I'm also not going to assume that you know what that ism is. And uh, so that if, if we were in a, uh, an environment where uh, it was just the people that were listening here and I knew who you were and what we were talking about, I could say an ism, you'd know what it was, and we could move on. But there are people listening online, um, there are guests, and so because of these things, we, we are going to define the ism. So every label and ism has pros and cons, as do most decisions and associations in life. And today I'm going to talk about the general template of what is defined in uh, Christianity as dispensationalism. There are different ideas about what this means, another problem with isms, right? And so I'm going to be teaching you something about the isms, and you're going to perhaps associate dispensationalism with what I say. However, if you ask some other pastor, this may not be what that what it means to them. Now, dispensationalism is an interesting thing. In some circles, it's the boogeyman. Uh, in others, it's a definitive framework of biblical interpretation. It is more or less that for us. Put simply, the idea is that the ages and epochs of history can be divided into general periods of time in which God, fully consistent with his character and his purpose throughout every age, has given a specific amount of revelation and so operates in a unique way that is consistent with the amount of revelation that, it is, that he has has given. He is not going to expect more from the people on the earth than the revelation that he has given to them, but he has chosen at various times and for various reasons to give only a certain amount of revelation, and then with each coming age, he gives more or progressive revelation to God's people. Then at times, and this is the progressive part, we witness a significant historical event as recorded in the scriptures which marks a transition from one age to another age, from one manner of operation of God within the complete consistency of his character and his purpose to another manner of operation, usually accompanied, as I've said, by added divine revelation and so added accountability and understanding and a new way of interacting with mankind through the added accountability and the added revelation that God has given to them. Now take note that throughout these changes, God's character and purpose do not change. The nature of salvation by grace through faith does not change. Uh, God is not changing his plan. God is not changing his program. God is not modifying because things uh, um, uh, have, have not gone the way he expects. God is progressively working through history point by point, binding himself, and a God who is outside of history is binding himself to the nature and timeline of man, of his choices. He is binding his actions to man's free will, and in doing so, he is working history out according to his perfect will, while simultaneously allowing each man to have his own will. And so the manner in which God disposes himself, his purposes, and his, his character 
through the lens of these things changes in accordance with the progressive amount of revelation that God gives to the world. And as we seek to systematize God's revelation regarding these things, uh, we would break up the scripture's teaching into uh, a various number of, of time periods. I'm going to give you seven. And these seven ages of history, or, or these seven dispensations, are as follows. First, we have innocence, the age, an age of innocence. Then, uh, of conscience. Third, government. Fourth, promise. Fifth, law. Sixth, grace. And seventh, millennium. As we consider these seven ages, this really comprises all of what we would understand to be the timeline of history, from when time began to when time ends, a book ended by eternity past and by eternity future. And as we consider these seven divisions together, what we find is that the, they present a course of history, not just bookended by eternity past and eternity future, but bookended by God's kingdom and God's preeminence as one who rules over all that is, over all of his creation. And as we consider this idea, a picture of God's kingdom at peace at the beginning and God's kingdom at peace at the end, and you'll see that as we walk through the sermon today, there's one major difference between God's kingdom that is at peace at the beginning of this, this creative process and then God's kingdom at peace at the end. In that as history progresses and we go through all of the destruction and turmoil of sin and of rebellion throughout history, the difference between the beginning and the end of history is that at the beginning of history, God's kingdom lacked one thing which the end of history will contain. After history has played its course, God's kingdom will be filled not just with men and women, and in the case earlier, Adam and Eve, and thus the potential for, for civilization, but a man and a woman who served God because God created them. We will find at the end of this timeline of history, men and women not just who serve God, but men and women who love God, who have chosen God's kingdom above Satan's kingdom, above the kingdoms of this world, so that God will not just have a kingdom of servants like he had at the beginning of history, but he will have a kingdom of sons. And this leads us into our final foundational element before walking through the actual teaching itself. And this is the concept of a kingdom. And again, this is something that we've not talked about for a little while, but it is important and it's worth reviewing once again. The concept of a kingdom is one which has a subset of requirements. In order to have a kingdom, there is a subset of requirements that one must meet. If I want to be king, I'm going to need three particular things. First, I'm going to need a right to rule. It is impossible to be a king if I don't have a right to rule. An imposter is not a king. He is a usurper. In order for a kingdom to be established, there must be a king with the authority given unto him to rule. Now, he might take that authority by force. He might steal that authority from another, but he has to have that authority. If no one recognizes a man's authority, then he doesn't have any authority. If I told my children, children, go do this, go do that, go do that, and they sit on the couch and I don't do anything about it and they don't do anything about it, uh, am I really an authority over them? 
I can say that I have authority over a group of people, but if they don't agree that I have authority over them, and if there is not a higher authority enforcing my claim, I don't actually have any authority. To this end, a person's right to rule is important if he is to have a kingdom. He must have authority, a right to rule, if he is going to have a kingdom. Now, second, I need the right to rule. Second, I need a realm over which to rule. A kingdom demands subjects over which to exercise authority. It's no good having authority if there is no one to lead, if there is no realm. I could tell my siblings, you have authority, or uh, excuse me, my, my children. I could, I could go to my children, I could tell them, uh, uh, I could tell my oldest son, I am giving you authority, Benjamin. And he would say, okay, uh, over what? And I'd say, no, I'm not, I don't, I'm not giving you anything to have authority over. I'm just giving you authority. Well, that's great. Now he has authority. Fantastic. Now he's a leader, uh, except that he's not because he doesn't have authority over anything. Am I, do I have authority over my siblings? No, you don't have authority over your siblings. Oh, do I have authority over um, my toys? No, no, you don't have authority over your toys. Do I have an authority over what to eat for breakfast? No, you don't have... So, so you, you, you're telling me I have authority, but I don't have anything over which to have authority. Then I don't have any authority. I don't have something over which to rule. Therefore, I cannot rule. And then third, I need to exercise my right to rule over the realm which I have to rule. I might have the authority, I might have subjects over which to rule, but a kingdom only becomes a reality when I exercise my right to rule over those subjects. I have no kingdom if I do not assume the responsibility of leadership. If I do not exercise authority, even if I have it, then I do not have a kingdom. Now, as we think through this, as we think through this element of kingdoms, God established from the very beginning his kingdom. He had the right to rule. He had the realm over which to rule. He created that realm, and then he was exercising the right to rule over that realm. He had taken up the mantle of ruler over his kingdom. Then came Satan, who the Bible describes as one of God's created cherubim. And as we considered a couple of weeks ago, when, we, when I preached through that message related to angels, and, and it was specifically on elect angels, but we spoke a little bit about Satan. There was a day when Satan decided he wanted a kingdom of his own. And we read about this day in Isaiah chapter 14, beginning of verse 12, where the Bible says this, How art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? How art thou cut down to the ground, which dost weaken the nations? For thou hast said in thine heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit also upon the mount of the congregation in the sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the most high. So Satan was filled with pride. He was filled with self. Whenever you see a person filled with self and a person filled with pride, rebellion is not far away. Self and pride, the elevation of self the elevation of one, one's uh, perspective on oneself is the very seat of coming, of coming rebellion. And Satan decided that he was going to challenge God in his kingdom. And God sovereignly chose not to destroy Satan, but rather to cast him out of heaven and ex exile him into the created order itself. So Satan was given agency whereby he was exiled into the created order. 
Yet he still had a will to rule. He still wanted a kingdom for himself. And he was thus determined that he would find a means by which to challenge God in God's authority. So Satan has this will, but he, the problem is he, he doesn't have a, a realm over which to rule. He has a will to rule. If he can find a realm over which to rule, and he can take authority over that realm, well then, he has the makings of a kingdom which can compete with God. And that's where the events that we considered last week come into play. When in the Garden of Eden, Satan targeted the crown of God's creation, Adam, over whom God had given dominion over the whole of the earth. Satan knew that if he could get Adam to follow him, if he could make Adam a servant of him rather than a servant of God, if he could make a kingdom proposal to Adam, tell Adam that, that there's a proposal whereby he should rule Adam rather than God ruling over Adam. And if Adam were to accept this claim, not only would God receive the crown of God's creation in humans, but God would all, or, but, but uh, excuse me, not only would Satan receive the crown of God's creation uh, in, in that he would, he would have humans as his subjects, but he would receive everything to himself for his kingdom that had been in man's dominion. In other words, all of the earth which God had given to Adam to have dominion over would be subjugated to Satan if the one over whom all of this delegated authority was given, Adam, was subjugated to Satan. So Satan did exactly that, as we read last week. Satan made a kingdom proposal. He proposed an opportunity for a kingdom in which Adam could live in direct contrast to God's kingdom. Unlike God's kingdom, where mankind lived under a careful and loving hand of the Creator, but in absolute submission to that Creator, Satan's offer was to allow man to be his own God, at least in his mind, to do what he felt was best, to do what feels right. Do what thou wilt. To be driven not by the law of God, but by the impulses of his own mind, the impulses of his own body, to not be restrained by morality, to not be restrained uh, by, by the expectations of the creator God, to not be restrained uh, by the way in which God created this world to function, but rather to cast off those chains and those bounds and to do things as he desired to do them. And this sounded very good to Adam. Satan did not tell Adam the whole story. He did not tell Adam that, that it would come with these deep consequences. But you know who did tell Adam that? God did. For in the day that thou eat of this fruit, thou shalt surely die. And indeed he did. He was separated from God at that moment. What Adam had failed to consider is all that it would mean that he would be separated from God. That he was not actually stepping into liberation when he sought for the liberation of Satan's kingdom. He was stepping into the chains and the bondage of sin. The chains and the bondage of the dictates of his own impulses so that he could not do the things that he would because he is bound by his flesh. Sin is always that way. Sin always promises all of these wonderful things, but, but sin fails to tell you about the devastating consequences the devastating consequences of pride, the devastating consequences of anger, the devastating consequences of, of bitterness and unforgiveness. Sin never tells you about those things. It only tells you that you have the right to do this and that it's going to feel good. Sin never tells you about the devastating consequences of sexual immorality. 
Sin never tells you about the devastating consequences of, uh, of, of intemperance and uh, substance abuse and alcoholism, only that it's going to feel good in the moment, only that you should not be restrained, only that you should not have to bind yourself to some standard uh, which does not feel good in the moment. And yet the consequences are dire and they were on that day. In this moment of Adam's rebellion, the crown of God's creation chose the conditions of Satan's kingdom over the conditions of God's kingdom. And so in that moment, Satan gained a kingdom. He gained authority and he gained a realm over which to exercise that authority. And he was certainly willing and eager to exercise it. And Satan certainly exercises this right over his own kingdom with gusto. So begins the operation of two kingdoms side by side. I show you this chart here for those of you that are watching and not just listening. And what you find here is a, a tracing of God's kingdom and Satan's kingdom. God's kingdom in the white timeline, Satan's kingdom in uh, the, the light red there. I'm not going to call it pink, uh, but light red timeline. And what I hope to show you through this timeline is the nature of Satan and God and God's kingdom and Satan's kingdom jockeying for the souls of men. And, and um, as, as, as this history plays out, God seeking to bring about the consummation of his program, all of his promises working out, God weaving history together for his glory and our best good, redeeming mankind unto himself, and Satan's desperate attempts all throughout this history to thwart God's plan, knowing that if he is able to successfully thwart any one of God's promises, any one of God's purposes, any one of God's uh, determinations as it relates to history, then God will have failed, God is not God, and then Satan's kingdom can prevail. So we began with this, this age of innocence as I, as I, I laid it out on that uh, chart of the ages. Beginning with an innocent creation which was flawless but untested. In this creation, God's desire was to rule absolutely and gloriously over all things. But for God to achieve this, he wanted his creation not simply to serve him, but to love him. And so he gave various elements of his creation a free will. And the first group that we see that we would presume to have a free will, at least as we try to put the pieces together, again, you can go hear my message on angels if you uh, are a little more, uh, want a little more info into this, but it seems as though he gave the angels a free will. We draw this from the fact that the Bible describes Lucifer, Satan, as one time being an exalted cherub, but now, of course, he is in rebellion against God. Uh, from the book of the Revelation of Jesus Christ, where we see an allusion to the fact that when the Satan, there described as a great dragon, fell, he brought one-third of the angels with him into his rebellion. And so we would believe that there was a point where angels had a free will. And when Satan chose to exercise this will against God to seek for himself a kingdom, and the other angels chose to follow Satan within the scope of this into his rebellion, they were then confirmed in their choice, and Satan sought to set up a counterfeit, an alternative kingdom that exists to prove that he can cause God to fail and so be a better king than God. So Satan's original subjects were these fallen angels, but he needed that realm and he needed man to secure for him that realm. So he brings man into the picture. Man is now his subject and he, is now, he now has the realm of the earth so that he's called the God of this world or the prince of the power of the air. 
Now, all the biblical record is tracing those men and women who have chosen either to be loyal to God's kingdom or to be loyal to Satan's kingdom and how God is going to use those men who love him and who are loyal to his kingdom to do damage to Satan's kingdom and to bring about ultimately God's purposes so that when Satan, the great deceiver and accuser of the brethren, goes to God and says, the only reason why any man ever serves you is because he has to, or the only reason why any man ever serves you is because of what you give to him, like in the days of Job. God can look and he can say, these men and women have chosen to love me because they believe my promises. And Satan, of course, flees when his accusations fall flat before the ears of God. So what I'm going to be doing for the next little while is I'm going to be tracing this kingdom through its various elements, uh, uh, the, God's kingdom, Satan's kingdom, tracing history, those who would seek to overthrow God's kingdom, those times where God's kingdom seemed to be in great peril, and then God's interventions and, and God's use of his people to bring about righteousness and to thwart Satan's attempts to, to cause God to fail. Because if Satan can cause God to fail at any one point along the way of history, then God's kingdom must surely fail as well. The neat thing about the Bible, however, is that we know the end. And in the end, what do we read about? We read about a victorious, unopposed divine kingdom made up only of those in God's creation who, having been given a choice, have exercised their will unto God. And so God's reign at the consummation of all things will be absolute, will be glorious, because all creation has submitted itself to him. So in this first period of time, we see the kingdom conflict established, and this carries us into the second age, what we might say the second dispensation. This is the age of conscience. Again, these labels are labels I've given. Maybe some other men have given these as well. Indeed, some other men have, have, have labeled these things as well. But these are not, we don't find these in the Bible per se. This is us systematizing the Bible. This is an ism helping us understand the Bible uh, and its broader narratives. So this begins with Adam and Eve's expulsion from the garden, leading up to the time of the flood. Each age is defined by major historical transitions, and then the addition of divine revelation, which accompanies divine accountability and renewed offers for mankind to choose between Satan's kingdom and God's kingdom. So in this age, God is allowing men to be governed, as the description of the age might uh, imply, uh, to be governed by his conscience, to do what he believes is right, which ends with man doing what is right in his own eyes and an utter disregard for God's authority. This is always what happens when man chooses to do that which is right in his own eyes. We do have a conscience given to us by God intended to direct us toward a measure of moral, uh, um, uh, moral, uh, uh, not just awareness, but of moral direction. This was the knowledge of good and evil as, as we see spoken of in the Garden of Eden. And yet man it has a, a tremendous capacity for self-deception and a, a, a horrible um, propensity to ignore that which God has built into him of conscience and do that which is right in his own eyes. And indeed, we see this to be the case. The age begins with the tragic account of Cain and his brother Abel. Cain was the elder brother. Abel was the younger There was a day when they brought their offerings before the Lord, and the Lord accepted Abel's offerings, but not Cain's. The text is clear that God rejected Cain's offering, not 
because God didn't like Cain, but because Cain's offering was wrong. It was not what God wanted. It was not what God asked for. It was what Cain wanted. Cain sought to bring the best of what he had to God rather than bringing to God what God asked for. We live in a world that is full of this today. We live in a Christian church that is full of this today. Christians who decide that they are going to give God the best of what they have to offer and that God is going to be forced by virtue of something about how, how God is or who God is or who they think they are, that God must bow to their interpretation of worship, to their interpretation of God, to their interpretation of what God expects of them. And as long as they're doing it with a proper motive or a proper heart, as long as their heart's in the right place, as long as they have a, um, a good will or, or, or good intentions, that God must invariably accept their good intentions and thus accept their worship or thus accept their sacrifice. And God is under no such obligation. The kingdom of God is God's and he rules over it. To that end, Cain brought what he thought was best. He brought it perhaps with all good motivations and with all good intentions, thinking that because of those good intentions, God must accept it. And God said, I do not because it's not what I asked for. God does tell Cain, though, if you do well, will I not receive you? If you would have done right, I would have received you, but I didn't receive you because you didn't do right. Cain didn't want to do well, though. See, Cain was fully invested in Satan's kingdom, in the philosophies of Satan's kingdom. Do what thou wilt, that God must accept me on my terms. And God must not. That's a lie of Satan. It's a deceit of Satan. Abel, however, was committed to God's way. He was committed to God's kingdom. To this end, God chose Abel to be, continue to be the seed through whom his promises of redemption would come. So Abel becomes the seed. He becomes the one through whom the Redeemer would come, the promised Redeemer. And, and, and we, we find in Genesis 3.15 that God had already promised a Redeemer. And immediately, as we find Abel being the one who is chosen to be that lineage through whom the Messiah would come, Satan immediately seeks to thwart God's kingdom, to thwart God's purposes. If he takes out the man through whom the seed would come, then surely the seed cannot come. So Cain one day kills Abel. In this we see the child of Satan's kingdom seek to overthrow the plan of God as it relates to God's kingdom. Well, you know the story. Cain is cursed and then God provides a new seed. As Genesis chapter 4 verse 25 calls Seth. Seth is born and immediately Eve, his mother, says, God hath appointed me another seed in place of Abel. She recognized what had happened. She recognized that Abel, the seed through whom Messiah should come, was killed. And she recognized that Seth was then appointed in Abel's place to be the one through whom the seed of Messiah would come. So God provides this new seed and this attempt to overthrow the kingdom of God is thwarted. Excuse me. Then, uh, and um, here we, we begin to see two administrations form. One through the family of Cain, who had devoted himself to the kingdom of Satan, and another through the family of Seth, who had devoted himself to the kingdom of God. There were other children of Adam and Eve as well, but the Bible really traces these two lines. Genesis 6 then introduces us to two groups, the sons of God and the daughters of men. I personally believe uh, this would be continuing to trace those two lines. Other people have very different ideas on that. But the interaction between these two groups, one way or another, uh, brings about the nature of redemption being threatened and God has to step in. 
God steps in through another man, a man of that line of Seth, a man of the righteous line whose name is Noah. He was yet righteous in his generations, whereas the rest of the earth had corrupted themselves before the Lord. God chose at this time to reset the human race through Noah and through his posterity. He calls upon Noah to build an ark and tells Noah that he would bring a flood upon the earth that would destroy all flesh except for those who were in the ark. This global flood is an historical reality. It's one that is backed strongly by convincing scientific data. But far more than that, we see that it carries the theme of redemption and salvation from swift and utter destruction and becomes a very type of Christ. It's a theme which is fulfilled and magnified in salvation from eternal destruction through Christ's finished work. So the flood effectively resets this program. And in doing so, God pushes back the kingdom of Satan. He pushes back Satan's program. He resets humanity. So God saves mankind from himself and he preserves for himself his kingdom. You say, well, pastor, that sounds like God is weak. This sounds like Satan is winning, but then God has to step in and do something dramatic because Satan's winning. That's a weak God. No, it's not a weak God, and let me tell you why. The day when all of these things happened, whether that be Adam's fall or whether that be the day where mankind had so corrupted himself upon the earth that uh, the earth was nothing but violence continually, the day that that happened, even the day that Satan chose to fall, uh, to rebel against God and thus uh, fell from heaven, God could have ended it all. God could have wiped it all out. God could have finished it. God could have been done just there, but he, he didn't. And the reason why God didn't just wipe out Adam, the reason why God didn't just wipe out everybody, the reason why God is playing this out and allowing these things to happen in every age, allowing mankind to make his choices, giving Satan his day, even when doing so allows him to be blasphemed and scorned. The reason why he's restraining himself from this kingdom and this dominance is because he loves you. Because God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Because if God had wiped out all of humanity, even in Adam and Eve, God would have wiped out you. Because God does not want mankind burning in a place of eternal conscious torment called the lake of fire, eternal separation from him. He wants every man to be redeemed and he wants to give every man that chance. But in order to do so, he must suffer sin because we are sinful. And if he gets rid of sin, he has to get rid of us. So Peter writes in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, the Lord is not slack concerning his promise as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. It's not that God is incapable. It's not that God is negligent. It's not that God is weak. God is patient. God is long-suffering. To destroy Satan's kingdom is to destroy, destroy everyone in Satan's kingdom, and that includes everybody who has not called upon the name of the Lord to be saved. So God endures this indignity because he's not willing that any should perish. Back to our account. Following the flood, we find ourselves once again in a new age. 
And with this new age comes new revelation, and God institutes new elements of governance in order to help restrain mankind's natural impulses. This is the time where God institutes human government, at least the first record of it that we have in the scriptures. So we call it the age of government. I call it the age of government. God here establishes this institution and specifically does so in order to help men obey the laws of God. Governments are established among men unto this purpose, to punish evil and to reward good. And God adds new revelation and new accountability to the world. Within this time, we trace the three children of Noah named Shem, Ham, and Japheth. God called them to spread out throughout the earth. From this first generation, however, there was a child that had been drawn to the allure of Satan's kingdom. All eight of the people who got onto that boat, Noah, his three sons, his wife, and his three sons' wives, uh, they were all righteous. They all got on the boat. They had all believed God. It was accounted unto them for righteousness, and they were delivered from the judgment of God by grace through faith. However, uh, one of Noah's grandsons, the son of Ham named Canaan, in that first generation following the flood, immediately aligned himself, he fell to the allures of Satan's kingdom once again. Noah cursed Canaan for this evil, and it is through Canaan that Satan's kingdom will continue to have a foothold in this world. At the same time, Noah blessed his son named Shem, blessed his posterity, indicating that very similar to Abel and then subsequently to Seth, and then through to Noah, now it would be the line of Shem, the Shemites, or the Semites, through whom God would bring Messiah, through whom God would continue to work. This was the line of those who had accepted and uh, loved God's kingdom and chosen God's kingdom. Now, whereas God told these men to spread out across the earth, to multiply and to replenish the earth, they instead were united under the leadership of a mighty hunter whose name was Nimrod. Nimrod perverted the function of government, which God had instituted in order to bring men unto himself and to, to, to keep men restrained unto good and, and, doing, uh, and, and avoiding that which is evil. And he perverted the function of government, organizing mankind through this government to work together to challenge God's authority, to make a government that was greater than God's government, to challenge God's government with man's government to make a name by building a tower that reached into the heavens, thus challenging God, symbolizing their strength through unity and their intent to cast off God's authority and unite under a one-world system. This system would be uh, defined, excuse me, by the things that are in the world, the darkness of this world, and so, in fact, Satan's kingdom, not just man's kingdom. Men have always built kingdoms. And as we see men today continuing to attempt to build kingdoms, they think that they are building them for themselves. They think that they are building them in their own honor, but they are building them in the very template of Satan's kingdom. They are doing Satan's dirty work. There are only two kingdoms. The kingdoms of this world are right now the kingdoms of the God of this world, who is Satan. Then there's coming a day, as recorded in Revelation chapter 13, where the kingdoms of this world will become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ. But the kingdoms of this world do not have autonomy in themselves. They never have, nor will they ever. And so we see this one world system that that Nimrod attempts to build as a means by which to defy God. This is the same one world system, the same philosophical, ideological one world system that we see in the book of the Revelation that will, will define the last days. It is defined by all of these things in the world, and again, God, is, God and his kingdom are threatened. 
This time, however, God does not destroy mankind. Rather, the Bible says he confuses the languages, establishing multiple cultures that would develop along such divergent paths, all the while being wholly unable to communicate one with another, so that through this separation of minds and powers, mankind would be dramatically hindered in their capacity to unite against God by uniting under a singular satanic banner because they're effectively too busy fighting themselves, fighting one another. And once again, remember, the point here is not that God is weak. The point here is that God is merciful, long-suffering, and forbearing. God is allowing history to weave itself together until the fullness of time comes when he can bring forth his Messiah and redeem mankind unto himself. And God is sustaining his creation, sustaining mankind, pushing back against Satan's kingdom while the nature of history is working itself out so that God can bring Messiah. Why didn't God just bring Messiah then? Because the world was not ready for Messiah, because the, the timing was not right for Messiah, because Messiah came at the perfect time in history because God wove time together to bring Messiah when he did. So God is bringing about these purposes, all of this so that he can save mankind from the day of destruction and judgment. All of this indeed for the very men who shake their fists at him. This brings us into the next area of time. Uh, many call it the time of the patriarchs. I'll call it the time of promise. When God chooses a certain man out of the line of Shem, a certain Semite named Abram, to carry his name and to be fa the father of a peculiar people. Abra Abram followed the Lord, listened to the word of the Lord, listened to the voice of the Lord, followed the Lord out of uh, his, his uh, land and out of Ur of the Chaldees into Haran and then eventually down into Canaan. He did this, believing the Lord, and it being counted unto him for righteousness, in that God would give him a great nation. God promised that through him would come the Lord's salvation. God chooses Abraham, as his name would eventually be called, and gives him promises. He gives him a national promise that he would make of him a great nation. He gives him a personal promise. I will bless thee and make thy name great. I will bless them that bless thee and curse them that curseth thee. He also gives Abraham a, an eternal, a universal promise. In thee shall all the families of the earth be blessed. There's the one where we find Messiah. Within this age, we see several attempts to cause this chosen family to fail. We see Abraham move out of the promised land and into Egypt where Pharaoh threatens God's plan to give Abraham a seed by taking Sarai to be a part of his harem. God intervenes, plagues Pharaoh, pro, uh, protects the legacy of Abraham, protects uh, God's plan through Abraham. Thus, Satan's kingdom and Satan's attempt to thwart God's plan in, in that vein is undone. Sarai, then discouraged by the fact that she was unable to have a child, encourages her husband to have a child with her handmaid, Hagar. Abraham yields the headship of his home. He yields the position of faith. He listens to his wife, and he has a child by Hagar. However, this is not God's chosen seed. This seed, in fact, named Ishmael, uh, threatens to completely undo the plan of God when God finally does give Abraham the, uh, his, uh, a, the, the chosen seed through his son Isaac, who he had as a child of promise with Sarah. So Abraham casts out the bondwoman and her son, and Isaac would be, uh, and excuse me, of Ishmael would come great nations. 
but those great nations would be a thorn in the side of Isaac's posterity, Israel, for the remainder of Israel's history unto this day. So we have Isaac, and Isaac marries Rebekah. During a famine, he goes into the land of the Philistines. The king, King Abimelech, all the kings of the Philistines are named Abimelech because that, it's a title, right, like Pharaoh, takes Rebekah as a wife in his harem, again threatening the promised seed. God intervenes once again, giving Abimelech a vision whereby he does not touch Rebekah because Abimelech fears God. God intervenes, gives Abimelech this vision. Rebekah is given back to Isaac. Rebekah has twins named Esau and Jacob. Esau is the elder. The birthright is his by, well, by birthright. The patriarchal blessing is also his by birthright, but Esau despises his birthright. He sells his birthright for a mess of pottage. Esau loved the things of this world. He loved the kingdom of darkness. He was committed to Satan's kingdom. And because he was committed to Satan's kingdom, he had no appreciation for that which his birthright would afford him as it would relate to God's promises in the land of promise and the legacy that God had chosen to leave to, the, the, to, to Abraham and Isaac. Thus, Jacob, desiring with all of his heart this birthright, takes advantage of this. He buys the birthright. He actually deceives his father for the blessing. These are not good. It's not a good thing that he deceived his father. It's not right. But what we do find is we find a man who had the faith to desire with all his heart God's blessing. Jacob is thus the one that we find that we continue to trace the lineage of the Messiah through. Because he has deceived his father, Esau is angry at him. Esau flees to Haran, where his uh, grandfather Abraham had come from, out of the land of promise, and he would remain in Haran for 20 years. He would get two wives, 12 children, until, uh, before he returns to the land of promise. Jacob is renamed by God Israel as he returns to that land with his 12 children, his 12 sons, excuse me, and one daughter. In jealousy... His sons conspire to destroy the second youngest of those sons, a young man named Joseph. They do so because Joseph has a spirit about him. It is a spirit of righteousness. It is a spirit of that which is right. And it appears that the Lord is using him. And so they desire to kill him. They ended up selling him into slavery, into Egypt. There he is blessed by God and he ends up becoming the second most powerful man in the most powerful nation in the world. During a famine, Joseph reunites with his family and graciously brings them to Egypt, saving his family from starvation in a time of peril. Yet Joseph dies and a new king arises that does not have an, a love and appreciation for Israel. By the way, Joseph is not the chosen seed. Interestingly enough, we, we, we say here that Joseph had this wonderful spirit about him, but it would not be through Joseph's lineage that the seed would come, right? It would be through Judah's. So Joseph dies, this new king arises, no love or appreciation for Joseph or for God, and he enslaves, he enslaves the nation of Israel. They continue to grow, however, and so Pharaoh orders every male that is born of this people to be killed. Thus hangs over the head of the descendants of God's chosen men, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, certain death through attrition in the land of Egypt. If all of the males die, then they will just simply die out eventually through attrition, their, their, their uh, Women will intermarry with the Egyptians and they will just become an intermarried um, Egyptian group of people. And thus, Satan and his kingdom would be victorious. So God raises up a man 
This man's name is Moses, risen up for a certain time that God might supernaturally intervene once again in the most desperate hour of Israel and redeem Israel, redeem his kingdom plan while preserving volition, mercy, and justice. God always preserves those things. And are you seeing that? Are you seeing these parallelisms? Are you seeing the unity of the Bible? Do you see why we believe that the Bible is a unified book? Do you see why we see God as having divided history into ages, into epochs, because we see the same thing happening. We see, the, we see threats to God's kingdom. We see God intervening, raising up men, making sure that his plan continues, making sure that those who are of the seed of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, those through whom God promised the seed would come, making sure that this happens in order that by God's grace and in God's wisdom, according to God's plan, Messiah might come about and you, and you and I might be redeemed. So we're tracing this deep, unified, focused theme through thousands of years of history as recorded in the Word of God because the Bible is a single book telling a single story. God delivers thus this nation from captivity, leads them toward the land unto which God had promised, and into the next major historical and revelatory milestone, and that would be what we would call the law. This is one that is certainly not foreign uh, to us as we recognize basically from uh, Exodus chapter 20 all the way through to uh, Jesus' death on the cross. We are in this time of the law. The age of the law begins with the Ten Commandments on Sinai and would continue till the death of Jesus on the cross. Naturally, this age is extensive, covering thousands of years of history. I can't cover it all. I'm not going to cover it all. I've preached about a lot of it. I'll preach about a lot more of it. We're going through uh, some of it in Sunday school right now. That's not recorded. I'm sorry for those of you who are listening. Uh, but we're going through, and, and we've been through a good number of this. We've been through Judges. We've been through First uh, and Second Samuel. We, we are going right now through First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles, uh, at least in part in Sunday school. And um, we've been through many of the prophets. Uh, there's so much there, right? But God gives his law, and in giving his law, he also makes a, a specific covenant with this specific blood nation, the nation of Israel, commissioned by God to represent him to the world and to usher God's kingdom program in through Messiah. As they obey, God will divinely and supernaturally bless them as a nation. As they disobey, God will divinely and supernaturally curse them as a nation. If they persist in their disobedience through the cursings, the final and accumulative cursing would be that they would be taken into captivity. As the descendants of Abraham, they were chosen to be a nation through whom the world would be blessed, a nation through whom Messiah would come. The conflict then continues for throughout the course of Israel's history, where Satan is attempting to thwart God's plan by seeing Israel destroyed. Satan is attempting to thwart God's plan by bringing so much sin into the ranks of Israel that they no longer are a distinct nation representing him properly. Satan is constantly seeking to make inroads into God's kingdom program, seeing, seeking to get God to, to come to utter failure through a, the destruction of Israel either spiritually or physically. And of course, we've seen this even all the way through the 20th century where Satan has been trying to seek the utter destruction of Israel as a means by which to cause God's kingdom program to fail. And all of the revolt and division and, 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 and uh, the history of the Old Testament happens until the time of the captivity. And they do go into captivity, but God restores them back to their land. 
And he begins in that restoration through this, the, 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 the final years of the prophets and then into what we often call the intertestamental period, the time between Malachi and Matthew. God is preparing the nation of Israel for the final fullness of time through which and at which time Messiah will come. Brought about in the perfect, absolute perfect time in history for Messiah. The time when the nation of Israel is ready. The time where the geopolitical circumstances of the day are ready. Where man's philosophy and ideology has grown to a point of sophistication and civilization where the realities and the truths of the word of God can stand in stark contrast to the darkness of mankind's own tremendous philosophies where the wisdom of Aristotle and Plato and Socrates are well-established in a culture and can be shown to have glimmers of light while being uh, effectively bankrupt in comparison to the light of life. So we enter into the New Testament proper, but we're still in an Old Testament economy while Jesus walks the earth. God has not spoken to the people in 450 years as things open up in the book of Luke. John the Baptist comes on the scene and he's heralding the imminent coming of Messiah. Messiah then comes, named Jesus of Nazareth. In opposition to John and Jesus are the Pharisees, whom are called the children of the devil. We read of Satan tempting Jesus, offering him the kingdom by means of Satan's will rather than God's will. We'll talk more about that in a few weeks. Had Jesus accepted the kingdom offer of Satan in the same way Adam had accepted the kingdom offer of Satan, God's failure would have been complete. Jesus would not have been God. The Father would have failed. The kingdom of God would have collapsed. Satan would be victorious. But Jesus overcame those temptations. Satan fled from him. We read of Satan tempting Jesus and, and, and Jesus prevailing. Not but a small remnant of Jews believed on their Messiah while Jesus walked the earth. The majority rejected him so much so that they condemned Jesus to death and executed him on a mode, in, in a mode of capital punishment called crucifixion. But this crucifixion was the will of God. This was the moment that all history had pointed toward. This was the reason why God brought the flood to preserve the righteous Noah and his family and to destroy the wickedness. This is the reason why God confounded and confused the languages. This is the reason why God protected Sarai in the days of, of, of Abraham. This was the reason why God protected Rebekah in the days of Isaac. This is the reason why God made the promises he made to Israel. He made it all. This is why God pre preserved Israel throughout the time of the judges and throughout the time of the kings, throughout the captivity, bringing them back into the land. He did it all so that Messiah could come, so that you could be saved from your sins. What a God. What long-suffering. Not a God of weakness. Not a God that needed a plan B. Not a God that was confused. Not a God that couldn't hack it. A God who was patient, weaving history together as a means and to an end. This was the event that was promised, the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ, all the way back to Genesis 3.15. The serpent has bruised the heel of the seed of the woman. He was hung upon the cross. But in Satan's attempt to destroy God's kingdom by destroying Messiah, his head was crushed because Jesus did not stay dead. 
He arose from the dead. He crushed the head of the serpent. He gave Satan a fatal blow. Satan's greatest power in his kingdom had been mankind's love for sin, mankind's love for the kingdom promises of Satan, this, this love for sin that would lead him constantly back again and again to final separation from God through death. But now Jesus had conquered sin, had promised to give all who will believe by grace through faith alone salvation from the power of sin and the power of our sin nature, which causes us to love the things of this world, causes us to eventually experience the penalty of sin, eternal separation from God, and, and thus giving us salvation from not just the power of sin, not just the penalty of sin, but eventually also the presence of sin in heaven one day. Thus mankind has now, the power has been established. The price has been paid for mankind to be redeemed from his sinful choices, to be brought not just out of God's, uh, Satan's kingdom, but to be able, able fighters for God's victorious kingdom. And this ushers in a mysterious, unheralded age in the Old Testament, what we call the age of grace. To this point, God has been working through one nation, the physical seed of Abraham, those who came from Abraham's bloodline to show himself to the world. God would now work through a new group of people, a spiritual seed of Abraham, those who did not share Abraham's blood but shared Abraham's faith to show himself to the world. The call into salvation is open to all and received by all who believe. And this is the church. The church is very different in character than any other age because the church is already victorious over Satan's kingdom, because Satan has already crushed the head of the serpent, because Satan is a defeated foe. The church is not struggling for victory over Satan's kingdom as others did in the same way others did. We're still, we're still fighting the battle, but it's a very different battle. The church is a trophy of God's victory. If you have accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior, you are already out of Satan's grip. You are already a trophy of God's grace. You are already a mark of God's victory. Satan is a dead man walking. He is already a defeated foe. Every time we meet here on Sunday, every time we partake together in the Lord's table, we are sounding the victory cry of a kingdom which is already won and is simply waiting for all of the citizens to gather and all of those, and, and, and offering to every single person to become one of those citizens and to, get, and to be a part of that in gathering before the king claims this kingdom. So in this time, we are spread throughout the world calling men and women out of darkness and into light. We are the ambassadors for a future kingdom which is already secured and already assured. We, through the Spirit of God, hold evil at bay. We, through the Spirit of God, call sinners out of darkness. We, through the Spirit of God, represent the principles of the kingdom of light before the face of the children of the kingdom of darkness. We're here to pull as many people away from Satan's kingdom as possible before the inevitable day when Satan's kingdom and all who love and follow it will be utterly destroyed. The church is the rescue team looking for all who will respond to the love and mercy of God. And once all who will accept God's kingdom do accept God's kingdom, once the call has gone out and each person has heard and been given that choice and has made that choice one way or the other, well, then God can finish his work that he began with the nation of Israel that was paused when Israel rejected their Messiah the first time. And this is our part in the battle. Our part in the battle is between Israel's first rejection and Israel's receiving of Messiah on the other end. 
This is our warfare, not just about you, not your battle, not just about Legacy Baptist Church, not just our battle. It is the fundamental battle between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Satan of which we are a part. Battle for the souls of men. The battle for the hearts of God's people. And this is why our place in the battle matters, Christian. Whenever we as Christians assume the principles of the enemy, rebellion, lying, anger, deceit, sexual uncleanness, things which breach into the darkness of this world, such as witchcraft and sorcery, idolatry. When we allow these things into our homes, when we allow these things into our lives, when we allow Satan's principles to dominate our way of living as those who are a part of the kingdom of God, do you see what we're doing? We're yielding the battle. See, the battle's already won, so we're not fighting in that sense. We're not fighting on, on, on that ground we're not fighting for, for a physical people. We're not, we're not, we're not afraid that, that a physical lineage, well, the nation of Israel can still be destroyed, and, and we saw that even in, in this past century. But that's not the nature of the church's battle. The nature of the church's battle is testimony and effectiveness. And when we use Satan's principles, when we give in to Satan's principles, we're yielding the battle. Many Christians even think they can use Satan's weapons against him. It doesn't work this way. They're his weapons, not ours. Anger, rage, lies, deceit, unforgiveness, sexual uncleanness. Trying to appeal to culture in order to win culture. Trying to be like culture in order to win culture. Trying to win the people of this world through the devices of Satan. This will never work because those are not God's devices. They are not things that reflect the kingdom of God. Satan's methods cannot reflect the righteousness of God. Satan is more than happy to let us have some measure of influence in the world, some measure of standing in society as a church or as individual Christians or even as a movement, as long as we're using the principles of his kingdom because no one will actually be drawn to God's kingdom through Satan's tactics, methods, and principles. And the results of Christians indulging in the kingdom of the enemy are devastating. Upon individual Christians and families, this compromise breeds the same problems as the world has. Sorrow, fear, anger, depression, confusion, division. These are the fruit of Satan's kingdom. These are the consequences when we buy into Satan's lies. And they're all over the church because the, the church lives by Satan's rules. As we live in and out of the miserable consequences of our compromise, do you know what else happens? We lose our testimony. We become effectively ineffective for the kingdom of Christ. So not only then has Satan's kingdom overcome and subverted individual Christians and, and even some churches, but he has invalidated thus those Christians and those churches from having the divine capacity and the divine blessing to call out others from the kingdom of Satan and into the kingdom of God. And Christian, this is the big picture. This is what we're fighting for. We join the legacy of followers of God from every age and generation who seek a country not made with hands whose builder and maker is God. We seek unto a kingdom which we have chosen of which we are already a part, though we have not seen it. 
And we, through the power of the Holy Spirit, that was given to those in this particular age of the church, testify against the kingdoms of our defeated foe. And each little battle we face, as we face the reality of spiritual warfare, the things that we're going to talk about over the next many weeks, the battles that we face, the tactics of the enemy, the things the enemy uses, the weapons that we have at our disposal through the kingdom of God, these contribute to either the furtherance or the hindrance of the kingdom of God in the hearts and lives of those who are around us and in, the heart, in your own heart and life as you indulge the flesh or you walk in the Spirit. We are either waking the minds and the hearts of men out of their deceits and empty promises and lies of Satan, or we are yielding the power that we have to call people out through our own ineffectiveness and compromise. And so the stakes of this battle, Christian, are extremely high. What is the cost of a soul? What if your testimony before a lost and dying world meant the difference between an individual overcome by the kingdom of Satan, persisting in the lies of his kingdom, or coming to salvation by grace through faith in Jesus' finished work? And the reason why this series is so important is because, particularly in times of great sorrow, many Christians are offended. They are overcome. And when, when Christians are overcome, they don't stop being lambs, but they are a lamb that has been devoured by Satan. They become ineffective, and they themselves are subverted. If there was ever a motivation for us to get serious about the battle, either for our own sakes or for the sakes of others, would it not be as we look at the reality of the spiritual warfare that is going on around us for the hearts and souls of men as it relates to the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Satan? And as we conclude today, Christian, be encouraged. Because as with every essence of this overview, as they all testified, so too does the end testify of God's victory. We don't know who will be there and who will not as far as those that will be in the kingdom of heaven and those that will be in the lake of fire. This is what we fight for. This is why the battle matters. But we do know one thing is for sure. God wins. And I hope you know what side you're on. We come to the final page, the final division of history, and that would be the age of the millennium. This begins after the seven years of tribulation. We're not going to talk about that. That's at the very end. The church age, we would believe, ends just before the seven years of tribulation. Some people give a whole other dispensation to these seven years, or we might call it the beginning of the millennium because it is indeed the second coming of Christ proper. It's characterized by, um, by God finishing his work with Israel. And as God finishes his work with Israel... He also judges the unbelieving world, at the end of which the nation of Israel accepts their Messiah, as the Bible tells us. Antichrist and the false prophet are thrown into the lake of fire. Unbelievers join the rest of the unbelievers throughout history in a place awaiting judgment called hell. And Satan is bound in the bottomless pit, awaiting 
place for rebellious angels for 1,000 years while God fulfills the promises that he has always made to the physical nation of Israel to rule and reign over them through the seed of his servant David. In this 1,000 years, Satan is chained, unable to tempt or to deceive. The curse is lifted from off the earth. Jesus rules from Jerusalem upon the earth with a rod of iron. The resurrected faithful rule and reign with Christ. The nations of those who are yet mortal will obey implicitly, but they will still have a sin nature. However, every offense will be dealt with swiftly. There will not be poverty. There will not be sorrow. There will not be sin in that sense because of the swiftness of God's judgment, because the curse has been lifted off the world, nothing would dare harm in all of God's holy mountain. The creative order will not kill, maim, or destroy. All will be subservient to Christ. But because there are still mortal men on the earth, mortal women, descendants of those who entered into the millennial kingdom from the tribulation period who had not died and have not been resurrected, there's still a choice to be made. And for this thousand years, as men and women have children, each of those children will be uh, responsible to make the choice either to accept or reject Jesus as their Savior, either to believe God and it be counted unto them for righteousness or not to believe God. And the Bible tells us at the end of this 1,000 years, Satan will be released from the bottomless pit to deceive the nations. And what we find is something that is incredibly insightful and interesting something which we all know from the word of God, but which our society would do well to understand today. That when Satan is released to deceive the nations, there will be men and women from every nation that will be deceived and that will rise up against Jesus and seek to overthrow him from his throne in Jerusalem, proving once and for all a very, very important point, Christian, and listen closely to this. What this will prove is that the problems that man faces, the, the, the problem of sin, the problem of sin and the nature of how sin comes out of us, the lies, the deceit, the theft, the crimes, the violence, the evil, this is not a product of our environment. It's not rooted in economics, for in that time there will be no poverty. It's not rooted in education, for in that time all will know the Lord. They will see him. They will know him because he will be ruling and reigning in righteousness. The problem of sin will not be the devil. No one will be able to say the devil made me do it because for 1,000 years the devil wasn't there. The problem was still, however, in the hearts of men because we are the problem. Not we as in God's creation, but we as in the rebellion that was instilled into us when Adam chose to sin. It will prove once and for all that we need someone to fundamentally change us from the inside out, that we cannot change ourselves, that mankind is never going to be good enough, that we will never be able to get rid of crime by getting rid of poverty. We will never be able to get rid of crime by elevating education because it is not that man needs better nurture. It is that man needs a new heart. It's that man needs to be cleansed of his sin. It's that man needs salvation from his sin. So the kingdoms will unite against Christ and he will destroy them with the word of his mouth. He will judge the nations at the great white throne and those whose names are not found written in the book of life will be cast in the lake of fire. And this is the consummation. The ultimate and absolute destruction of Satan's kingdom and the restoration of God's perfect kingdom. We enter into the eternal state where God melts the earth with a fervent heat 
and creates a new heaven and a new earth. Satan's kingdom is finally and utterly destroyed. Satan is cast into the lake of fire for eternity of separation from God. And all who followed Satan in opposition to the kingdom of God will burn with him in this place of eternal separation. And all of those throughout history, in every age, who seeing the choice between God's authority, the kingdom of God, and Satan's authority, the kingdom of Satan, and chose to love and trust the unseen God and his kingdom. All those who exercise their will and love to God will rejoice with him for all of eternity in a perfect kingdom that is not only perfect and that God created it that way, God redeemed it to be that, but who chose to love the Lord. And that will be, of course, the difference between the beginning and the end. At the end, God's kingdom will be populated not just by servants of God, but by sons of God. So shall we ever be with the Lord. This day is coming. And the question is, are you ready for it? What is abundantly evident as we walk through this is that there's a choice to be made. And the first question I ask is that very important question. Have you ever accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior? Have you ever accepted the kingdom of God above the kingdom of Satan and the kingdoms of this world? Have you ever come to the point where you've recognized that you are a sinner, that you cannot save yourself, that like we will see so poignantly at the end of the millennium, it's not that you've been dealt a bad hand. It's not that you're actually a good person, uh, but you've just been put in bad circumstances. It's not that, that uh, if, if, if you tried hard, you could overcome. It's not that you've just not had enough money or not had enough time or not had enough disposition. It's that you have a sinful heart and there's nothing that you can do about it. And that if you stay on this course of indulging your sinful heart, you will stay on that course all the way to hell, all the way to eternal judgment and separation from God in the lake of fire. But God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Have you accepted that gift? Have you believed with all your heart that Jesus died on the cross for your sins? Not, not just for me, not just for those evil people out there, for you, because you are one of them. You are a sinner. Have you accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior? Have you come to that point? If you have not believed that Jesus died on the cross for your sins, that he was buried, that he rose again the third day to save you from your sins, would you accept that today? Christ holds out a gift through his finished work on the cross, through his glorious and, and, and victorious resurrection. And he says, if you will but accept this gift of salvation, I will redeem you from sin. And it's not just that he'll redeem you from the end of sin in eternity in the lake of fire, but he will break the chains of sin over you. He will redeem you from your own sinful choices. He will break the power of sin so that you can live in righteousness. Do you want that today? If you haven't accepted it, would you accept it today? Christian, if you're already a part of the kingdom of God, then you know that there's work to do. It is no small thing. We face an enemy who has already lost, but the question is who will go down with him? He knows that his time is short, so he rages. Maybe he's raging in your heart. Maybe he's deceived you. Maybe you're a Christian, but you have been brought into the throes of, uh, of, of Satan's devices, his condemnation, his guilt, his temptations. And you have no control over your emotions. You have no control over your actions, you, you, are, you, you know that you're redeemed from, the, from, from, from your sin, but you, you're not living like it. It's because you're losing the warfare, Christian. You're losing the battle. 
There's a battle raging and you need to see it. You need to understand what the weapons are to fight it. And then you need to decide whether you have the will to do it. But see, here's the thing. If you're a part of the kingdom of God, the only person who can defeat you is yourself because you're the only one who can let Satan in. He has no power but that which you give it because Jesus conquered Satan's power on the cross and you've received it. So for the next 12 weeks or so, we're going to have instruction in this warfare. The enemy's tactics, the enemy's weapons, and the weapons of our warfare, the weapons of the kingdom of God. May God help us to become good soldiers of the cross of Christ. Let's close in prayer. Thank you for listening to Pastor Jamin Wickler from Legacy Baptist Church in Buffalo, Minnesota. More information about Legacy Baptist Church and a library of sermons are available at www.legacybaptistchurch.net.